So let's look at our question here. We're combining questions as we, we have to do to get through all the material in the time allotted. But um, So Theology 22 asks us pr- to provide our understanding of how the Holy Spirit guides Christians. And then Counseling 18, which is similar uh, in terms of the application of that doctrine. This is Tim and Emily. They've got issues in their marriage. He's got a bipolar diagnosis. There was some uh, outbursts of anger and some violence. Uh, Emily is convinced that God is telling her to divorce Tim. Write out your word-for-word response to Emily on this matter. and In your response, be sure to address the themes of biblical decision-making and permission for divorce and remarriage. So what that means is we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So let me pray for us and we'll do that. Um, Father, thank you for the privilege of being around your word. Will you build us up in it and give us direction and guidance? And we know that we're going to talk to people just like Emily that are not fictitious but are actually real people in real difficulty and they really truly are wanting to know your will and how they determine that will will change the course of a marriage or of a life decision and so we uh, these are important things and uh, help us to uh, just really um, sharpen our pencils biblically as we look at these uh, truths together that we might rightly divide your word and, and care for people in Jesus name amen so we want to start with just talking about that first theology question, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you will agree with this. Um, I, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. You know, I, I grew up in the uh, late 70s, early 80s when Star Wars, the original Star Wars episodes four, five, and six came out, and um, uh, I mean, that was my childhood. You know, and Halloween. You know, my brother was. Han Solo and I was Luke Skywalker or whatever and that was just in fact uh, we I was just at my parents house playing with my two uh, nephews my brother's boys and we still have like original Star Wars figures that apparently are worth lots of money and you know here's my six-year-old nephew like look Han Solo can fly you know I'm like hey hey, hey that's worth some money it's a pay for your college someday son um, anyway <laughs> But uh, but I, I just thinking about that, when I think about guidance in the Holy Spirit, I, I really think that a lot of Christians today have a Star Wars mentality, whether they know it or not. And, and when they think about the Holy Spirit, they think, use the force, Luke. They, they think the Holy Spirit is like this energy field that binds the world together, whatever the quote is. And, and, um, and while they wouldn't say, you know, there's a dark side and a light side of the force, I think, I think they, they tend to view the Holy Spirit and his role in more of a mystical, Hindu, or at least influenced by more Asian religious cultures than biblical truth. So have you guys found that to be true also? And uh, so that's why we need to really go back to Scripture and just remind ourselves of some basics about the Holy Spirit. And uh, what I want to do is... um, kind of just give you a crash course on the Holy Spirit here, and then we have more to talk about, of course. But uh, let's just um, let, let's just look at one verse that you know here, and, and we'll, we'll build from that. Go back to the passage we were looking at last hour in Ephesians chapter 4. And tucked away right in this chapter that we know about equipping the saints for the work of service and speaking the truth and love and putting off and putting on, Paul lobs this verse in there, and it's a verse that we're prone to read over as he's talking about dealing with sin, dealing with righteousness, walking in a a manner worthy. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and we're back to the process. Tucked in the way of, of these admonitions on deal with your sin, deal with your sin, deal. He says, oh, by the way, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
And that's interesting because we don't often think of the Spirit's role in the midst of sanctification, the putting off and putting on. But I think what Paul is saying is it's, it's a strategically replaced reminder that when we are letting unwholesome words proceed from our mouth, when we are letting the sun go down on our anger, when we are stealing instead of working in honest labor, when we are living in anger and bitterness instead of tenderheartedness and forgiveness, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God given to us as a gift who sealed us in redemption and who resides in us uh, as, as God's agent of change in us. And, um, but the language is what's interesting. You will never, ever, ever hear Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Darth Maul, Anakin, and all the other characters I don't know, um, say this. You can grieve the force. Do not grieve the force, Luke. Right? You, 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 I can't do James Earl Jones, but right? Yeah, you, you don't hear that because it's an energy field. It's a it's an electromagnetic something of of George Lucas's imagination. The Holy Spirit, in contrast, is a person. If my teenage son or daughter makes a sinful decision, it grieves my heart. When someone you love does something reckless or sinful or unwise, it grieves you. Grief is a unique attribute of personhood, isn't it? And what we're looking at here, we're kind of waving our hands at some ideas here, is the idea that he is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an energy field. He's not an emotion. He's not a feeling. He's not an it. The Bible consistently uses the the masculine pronoun, he, to describe his work as the other two members of the Trinity as well. So he's a person, right? He has uh, characteristics of personality. Uh, He's the spirit of life, intelligence, freedom and purpose, liberty, love, and knowledge. He displays actions of personality such as speaking, we'll talk about that in a minute, interceding, commanding, teaching, testifying, reproving, guiding, praying. He can be obeyed, lied to, resisted, vexed, grieved, blasphemed, and outraged or insulted. That's interesting. We don't think of the Holy Spirit like that. Um, Many years ago, one of the books that God used in my life to eventually bring me to um, salvation is a little book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Have you guys heard that or read that? And, you know, it's not solid theology. Theologically, there's some, some challenges with it. But overall, his argument and premise is sound. One of the things he talks about in mere Christianity is why the Holy Spirit seems more mysterious to us as opposed to the Father and the Son. And, and Lewis, I'll never forget this, um, said this. He said, it, it's because we're usually looking at the effect that he has. We're not looking at him directly. Uh, The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? And therefore, as resident inside the believer, we're seeing the effect of the Spirit more than we're looking at Him directly because He's working in and through us. I thought that's probably a good observation that Lewis makes. And we don't think that when I sin, this Holy Spirit that resides inside of me, the, the, the third member of the Trinity, is grieving, rejoicing, insulted, joyful, I mean, all, all those responses that we see here, um, reproving, testifying, uh, vexed, blasphemed, right? Hopefully th- those aren't happening, but um, he's a person. And, and you can't, even though he's a little more mysterious, we, we agree with Lewis on that, he's nonetheless a person as the Father and the Son. Now again, we know that uh, you know Jesus came to glorify His Father, to do His Father's works. So even how we think about the members of the Trinity and how they work, um, we see the Spirit proceeding. But the Spirit is doing what? He, he's illuminating the work of Christ, and the work of Christ does what? Glorifies the Father. So we recognize there's a, a Trinitarian logic here to, to appreciate as well. As Yes? Holy Ghost, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then that was just you know, a different vision in your mind for people to think about. 
Correct, yeah, and, and some of that, if you go back and look at the older English versions, the King James, and even some of the old creeds, the Holy Ghost, um, that language of ghost doesn't mean, didn't mean then what it means today. They, they understood it as a, a spirit, not something you know for Halloween. Today, that's why a lot of the translations have changed, because ghost has changed meaning. But I think sometimes people retain it because it does kind of give you that mystery, kind of that, you know, a little bit of a gray area so we can fill it in. Um, but as a person, remember, um, I want to show you this because he's a person, he communicates like people communicate. He communicates using words and language. And, uh, so let's turn back in our Bibles and look at a couple passages here. This is worth underscoring. And this will get even into what we're talking about with the Emily case study, Acts chapter eight, verse 29. So, so what's happening? Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit's been given. The gospel is going forth. The apostles are scattering to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and, and who is the, the sort of orchestra director while well, the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing those early apostles? Now remember, in this day, uh, there was no New Testament written. And therefore, the apostles were, um, were receiving actual direct revelation from God. Uh, we understand that those days came to an end when the canon was closed. There's not new revelation being given. But in the book of Acts, all that's in process. And so the apostles are receiving new direct revelation from God. And then, of course, they are documenting that in the books that they would later write. So in Acts chapter 8, uh, we read this in verse 29. Uh, this is um, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, right? You remember that? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it. And um, so Philip goes up to him, and this is interesting. Um, He's returning, he's sitting in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, watch this, comma, open quote, go up and join this chariot, period, close quote. Uh, You say, well, the punctuation wasn't a part of the original. That's true. But that punctuation reflects the intent of the book of Acts written in Greek. You say, why is that significant? The Holy Spirit spoke to Philip, and he did it using words and language. Words and language. Um, Flip the page to chapter 10, verse 19. We see the Holy Spirit working again, this time with uh, Peter. Verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, remember he's had the vision of the sheet with all the animals, clean and unclean, rise, kill, eat. Those great words of carnivores everywhere. Um, So he's reflecting on that vision, and he says in verse 19, the Spirit said to him, comma, open quote, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Um, almost certainly a audible verbal revelation. Contextually, you can't take it any other way. Uh, the Holy Spirit is speaking to Peter like he spoke to Philip using words and language. Uh, we also see, if we flip the page to chapter 13, verse 2, I'm just trying to give you a, a sampling. Uh, this time... <clears throat> We've got uh, Barnabas and Simeon and all these guys gathered together. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, comma, open quote, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Again, audible verbal revelation. Um, You say, what's the point? Because the Holy Spirit is a person, he communicates like people communicate, which is using words and language. Why am I stressing that? There is a very common but misguided notion today in otherwise great churches that the Holy Spirit somehow speaks in a different way. That he speaks through your emotions. That he speaks through your feelings. That he speaks through impressions. That he speaks through promptings. And uh, I'm just here to tell you, and I love you. Don't, Don't take my word for it. Do what I did. Study it. I was not convinced of this years ago till I studied it. There are zero examples in the Bible of the Holy Spirit communicating like that. And 
There are zero examples in the Bible where the Bible tells Christians, listen to the Holy Spirit like that. Not there. And uh, now, now I know we've all experienced some sort of prompting, some sort of impression. I'm I'm not saying that those experiences don't happen, because they do. What I'm saying is, I don't think biblically it is warranted to say that's the Holy Spirit. I think there are other better explanations for what those experiences amount to. But it's not the Holy Spirit. Biblical data, he speaks using words and language. Are we still friends? Okay, good. Okay. Um, So now, let's talk about maybe how he does speak, right? How does he work? He is the author of Scripture. Let's just wave our hands at some verses here. You guys already know this. But be, be amazed by this as we ought to be amazed. Peter's writing his second letter to the uh, uh, Christians that are scattered. Nero is persecuting the church by the time this letter comes out. Um, Christians are being afflicted. They're, being, they're suffering. They're, they're being martyred. They're being persecuted. And uh, Peter points them right back to the sufficiency of Christ's power which makes for everything pertaining to life and godliness, right? And that comes through his precious and magnificent promises. Peter says to these struggling Christians, Christ has given you everything you need to endure, and his revelation, his promises, his word is the agency that Christ gives us to access that power and to realize that sufficiency. And remember, he, he thinks Peter thinks back in chapter 1 to that time on the mountain when, when he and James and John got to see Jesus transfigured and, and how amazing that was. And then he says this in verse 19. This is chapter 1, verse 19. But we have the prophetic word made more sure. We say, Peter, more sure than what? back up in the text more sure than the transfiguration peter's saying that transfiguration was awesome i was there but we have something even better than that more reliable than that experience not that he's not downgrading the experience he's elevating the value of the word of god and uh, that's what he says there right we should pay attention to it as a light a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns verse 20 know this first of all no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Talking about the agency of the Spirit in producing the Scripture. You you, you guys have heard sermons on this. The language here, moved along, nautical term. Uh, If there's a parallel, what Peter is saying is that in in the way that wind empowers a sail in a nautical vessel, the, the Spirit of God empowered or worked to give the biblical writers what they needed to write exactly what God wanted them to write. So he's the author of Scripture in the most intimate sense of the term. It's God's Word, but the Spirit's agency is particularly being highlighted and then other passages to that effect. He's also the illuminator of Scripture. That sounds like a uh, like a, um, a war movie, right? A, a, the Terminator, right? No, the Illuminator. First Corinthians chapter two, again, Paul writing to the Corinthians and he's in context. What he's doing is he's talking to them about the foolishness of the gospel message. Remember that in context, you know, he says the word of the cross is foolishness and to those who are being saved. It's the power of God. And he's talking about just how people react to the gospel and the truth of God's word. And, And that gives him an occasion to say, look, let me explain to you why people respond the way they do sometimes. And he talks about. In chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to, to them, or excuse me, to him, but he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But, verse 15, he who is spiritual appraises all things. And, and, and the reference there by spiritual, what Paul's getting at is the, the one whom the Spirit has illuminated and, and worked and, and made these things clear. Um recognizes and affirms that we call that illumination in the bible i've given you a uh, some quotes there from um ryrie and, and paul ends the ministry of the holy spirit whereby he enlightens those who are in right relationship with him to comprehend the written word of god and not comprehend like unbelievers can't understand the basic facts of the bible comprehend in the sense they affirm it to be god's word in that that's what illumination references He's also the agent of righteous living. We won't turn there, but we know uh, Scripture says in Galatians chapter 5, walk 
by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he's going to give two lists, right? There's the deeds of the flesh. There's the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know if you're walking by means of the Spirit and not the flesh? Answer, you see his fruit. And even that's instructive. Remember what Lewis said? We, we, we we're usually looking at his effect. We're not looking at the Spirit directly. Well, that's true. You may not see the Spirit directly in your life, but you will see evidence that He's been there when you love and are patient and are kind and etc. Uh, that fruit there. Um, now, now, what is this being led by the Spirit thing? Because the question ACBC is getting at on the exam is, what is guidance like? Like, how does the Holy Spirit actually guide believers? And and this is where taking what we've looked at already. And now focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit as it relates to guidance. Uh, We read phrases in the Bible that go like this. If you are led by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8 verse 13. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? And I think often what happens when Christians hear led by the Spirit, they take that phrase and they import all sorts of logical, plausible but nonetheless, unbiblical ideas about how does he lead? Well, you know, he, he speaks to my heart. He whispers in my ear. He gives me a prompting. He gives me an impression. <clears throat> um, so so what, does, uh, what does that phrase actually mean? And this is where if you actually do some study, like, for example, if you want to look at Romans 8 with me or you can just listen if you want to. In the context of Romans chapter 8 where Paul uses this phrase, he's contrasting two ways of life. There's the the person who is led by the flesh, and there's the person who is led by the Spirit. And Paul's clear in the context, what he's doing is he's contrasting a Christian with a non-Christian. It's very clear. He's not saying two types of believers. He's saying one is a Christian, one is not. And we know that because he says here, those in the flesh cannot please God. The mindset on the flesh is death. And then in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Making it very clear that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. So that's our context then where Paul says this in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you, living, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now here's our phrase. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What does he mean contextually being led by the Spirit? Well, if you look at the previous verse, he makes it clear. Being led by the Spirit is not some mystical, he speaks to my heart, he impresses me, he prompts me. No, no, no. Verse 12 explains it because verse 12 says, um, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you say, how do you know if you're being led by the Spirit? Are you putting to death the deeds of sin? That's how you know. So being led by the Spirit is, is actually a statement of fact that describes true believers that are walking in sanctification. It does not mean that a believer experiences some sort of inward impression or feeling that's designed to instruct the believer to act a certain way or make a certain decision. Does that make sense? It's like we've hijacked that phrase and we've developed the whole theology of what it means that just is not in the text of Scripture. So, Betsy. Um, to, to, uh, yeah, to be led by the Spirit means you're, you're, you're saved and sanctified. Yeah, if you, yeah, that's a simple way of saying it, yes. So now, now can, we not, um, can we not put to death the deeds of the body? Sure we can. But normal sanctification is just saying you're being led by the Spirit and He's working in your life so that you repent of sin and walk in righteousness. That, that's being led by the Spirit. It, it, it's not something that we go, oh... He just spoke to my spirit, so I should buy this house or get rid of this car. Or you know, it's not like that. It's the, the spirit's leading is the same thing as progressive sanctification. You say, why is the spirit involved? Because he's the agent that allows us to actually grow in those things. So yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. It is. A lot of people. You know, I, I lived there for a long time. Maybe you lived there for a long time. Um, and a lot of wonderful Christian, godly people, people that know their Bibles, people that have been to seminary. People, you know, it, it, it's not, it, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things that, that has stuck in tradition. And because otherwise reliable authors and Christians talk about it, it just continues to be propagated. But it, it's it's mysticism. It's got roots in New Age theology and in other uh, more Eastern religious systems, and uh, it is not it's not in the Bible. Um, I, I really think that when people believe they are you know the, the the Spirit is speaking to them in their hearts, they're confusing the voice of their spirit with the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing the voice of conscience, the voice of their own musing. Um, we, we, I, I, we can say this, right? That, that those conversations happen in us all the time, right? We, we, we think, we reason, we, we can, in our minds, you know, hear, um, conver- not conversations, but just, you know, words and, and sentences going on. And, and that is the fruit of our, the operations of our inner man. The, and, and if it's a strong you know, impression, it's probably the voice of our conscience, Scripture says. But it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God on our inner man, on our conscience. He, he's not, you know, it, I, think some, I think some Christians think the Holy Spirit has this megaphone, and he's in here, and he's saying, you know, go to that house. To make, make that, it, it, and that's not how he works. He, he doesn't have a little megaphone in our hearts, you know, shouting against everything else. The Spirit works through the Word on our hearts, on our spirits, to shape our conscience and to inform our thinking and to inflame godly emotion. And so we're seeing the effect of His work when those things are happening. It's, it's not some you know random voice out there. The, the, the voice of Scripture is the voice of the Spirit. That, that's the, I'm, I'm stealing my own thunder here, but that, that's where this goes. So, Mike. Yes, and 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 we we all affirm that because that happens happens to all of us. We call that providence. The providence is the outworking of God's sovereignty, right? Where He rules and reigns over all, and then He He works out His plan in every detail of life. And we ought not to be surprised that there are things that line up as He is moving us toward Christ likeness. But we say that's pro, that's a function of providence. That's not something directly that the Spirit is doing. Although the spirit is involved in that for sure. Yeah. 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 You think the pastor read your email? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I will say that the, the closest thing we get to the spirit working the way I'm critiquing is conviction because the scripture does say one of the spirit's roles is to bring conviction of sin in uh, what John 15. So um, John 16. And that's where um, the Word of God, as it is exposed to me, the Spirit works through the Word of God to bring conviction. But again, He's using the agency of the Scripture to do that. Or, or maybe He's using the agency of the Scripture that I've memorized, I've, I've put into my, my mind in some way. Um, but on your notes here, the work of the Spirit is regularly linked to the Word of God in Scripture. So you guys know these texts, right? Ephesians 5.17 talks about, um, you know, don't be drunk with wine, right? But but be filled with the Spirit, verse 18. And uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then Colossians says what? Same thing. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it doesn't say be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says what? Yeah, let the Word of Christ indwell you richly, right? So the Word of God, the Spirit of God... 
Which one is it, Paul? Well, they're working together. As I dwell on the Word of God, I am being filled with the Holy Spirit in the sense because He's working through the Word. The same thing with John and and Ephesians there. Jesus is going to say, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Ephesians 5 says the Spirit is the one who sanctifies. Which one is it? The Spirit is using the Word of God to accomplish that. Um, The Holy Spirit works through the Scriptures, not apart from them. And I'm not saying not apart from in terms of providence. I'm saying directly uh, where I'm looking for his guidance. Yes, ma'am. So the more you have the word of God in you, the more the Holy Spirit can be able to use you or use that word. Yeah. And and the way I would say it, just so that we're, and I know you're not intending this, but just so that we're not limiting God, right? We're not putting limits on God. We're saying the way the Bible describes the Spirit's work in us most effectively is through the word of God. And therefore, the more word I'm putting in, in a sense, the more ammunition yeah. there is there. Yeah, Micah. So in a first counseling session, do you always put some people to train them in certain um, You know, I don't, but that's not a bad idea because if, if they really want to see the, the change and the, the agency of the power of the Holy Spirit through the word, that, that's a great idea. I like that. Yeah. Um, the Holy Spirit works on the mind and heart of the believer through a normal, rational understanding of the Scriptures. Am I interpreting certain emotions, feelings, impressions, or circumstances as his, his guidance? See, that's the thing, again. The Holy Spirit's working on my mind through the Bible. And I think sometimes Christians think we're going to bypass reason, we're going to bypass my mind, we're going to bypass the Bible, and he's just going to drop some nugget of something directly into me and uh, you know, could he do that sure does the bible say he does that i can't find one example of that and i can't find one exhortation to follow that so i'd say we, we, we ought to be cautious about that and then i believe the holy spirit honors the sufficiency of the scripture uh, therefore i am i expecting the holy spirit to provide guidance beyond the written word think about this if the holy spirit is the author of the bible that said the Bible's sufficient it would be weird for the, the, the Spirit to then give us additional revelation that denies sufficiency. It doesn't make any sense. So understanding the Spirit the way we're looking at here is consistent with our doctrine of sufficiency. And it's consistent with the Spirit that actually inspired the text. So, Okay, um, we, we recognize that uh, the Holy Spirit works in concert with other two members of the Trinity. God's providence as he carries out his sovereign will will likewise guide and direct believers. But this level of guidance is inaccessible to the believer before the fact. As a believer seeks guidance through the scriptures and desires to be wise and obedient, he trusts that God will providentially work through the process to lead him to the right direction. Make sense? Um, So I've given you a a summary statement there uh, from Don Whitney. Actually, a couple of summary statements there that you guys can read. Just good quotes from authors so you recognize I'm not just making stuff up here. Uh, did, did I did I tell you um, this years ago? My oldest son, who's 20 now, uh, he's 16. He just gets his license, and uh, he actually bought a car before he got his license. And he got an old. You remember those little um, those little Mazda Miatas, little two seat convertible, little like British race car deal. So he he worked all summer, saved up his money, and he bought one of these little little cars from a friend of ours. And uh, he goes to Stephenville to the DMV there to, to, to take the, the driver test in his Miata. And, uh, and then, you know, I think he and I or his mom, you know, drove back to, to Toller. And um, so there we are, proud moment. He's got his temporary permit. You know, I got my license and I'm going to drive to school now. And we're like, yeah, I guess you can do that now, huh? Um, and uh, so maybe you had this moment with your kids. That you picture my wife and I, little teary, looking out the window as he pulls out the street. We're here, you know. And, and he's, he's pulling away, you know. And, and we live in Toller. The school's like a mile and a half away, right? It's not far. And I remember, I'll never forget, as soon as he, you know, left our site, I just had this overwhelming sense of dread. I just, I just know something bad's going to happen. And then I start thinking, you know, he's got to cross 377. 
supposed to be 45 miles an hour in Toller, but we've all gone through Toller. We know that doesn't happen. People, right? Those semi trucks, you know, they got that new that new dirt plant where the cement mixtures pull out there, and you know, these big trucks come hauling through. He's got this little car. The 18 wheelers don't see him. And I, I, so I, I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, he's got to cross three. He's never done that by himself. And, and there's those 18 wheelers. You know, he's excited. Maybe he forgets to look both directions, and you know, his little teeny tiny car that blends into the deal. And I'm thinking he's gonna. And it, it, it was as real as the sky is blue. And then I'm like, I gotta text him. Where's my phone? Gotta say, no, 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 no. I don't want him looking at his phone. If he's like, I don't. Want, okay, so I'm, I'm time. Okay, a mile and a half. Okay, I do the math. So I give him about, about that should be about four and a half minutes. Okay, I'm gonna text. I'm there. I am. I'm gonna. And I'm just. I am a mess. Um, that feeling felt supernatural. It was convincing. It was plausible. It was real. I mean, I'm 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 like sweating. I'm I'm right. <sighs> hey, son, are you okay? Yeah, Dad. Why? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know. What happened? Um, I gave an impression, authority, that God does not intend for it to have. And then, my mind took over. My fallen, unsanctified. The Bible should have been rescuing me, but I, I, I was not, right? And it just goes to show you that it can feel real. It can feel like it's from God. It can be convincing. It can, right? And all it is, all it was, was my fallen nature. That's all it was. My fallen nature, my fear, my anxiety, and, and my fallen thinking. And I should have known better. I, I, I teach biblical counseling, right? I, so, uh, But I, I say that to say, as I'm critiquing this, don't, don't hear me saying, I haven't been there. Um, but re- remember, we have to let theology interpret our experiences. We don't want to let experience govern our theology. And that's what I was doing in that moment. I was letting my experience and my fallenness dictate what was true. Okay, let's shift gears here, guys, and let's talk about biblical decision-making I want to commend to you, uh, Stuart Scott has a little booklet. It's in your notes there, uh, the reference. Uh, it's called Biblical Manhood, but ladies, it's, it's a safe book to purchase. Um, biblical Manhood. He has, uh, Dr. Scott did his doctoral dissertation on a biblical paradigm for decision making. And he has condensed that in the back of that little book called Biblical Manhood. It's a great resource. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a great resource on decision making. Um, there's another one by... Um, uh, they're, they're all in there. Um, there's one called Decisions, Decisions, Dave Suavely, really good book. So th- there's great resources out there on decision-making. I'm just going to wave my hands at some of the principles here, okay? The, the first thing, when we talk about decision-making, we're thinking now about Emily. Emily's convinced God's telling her to divorce her husband. And um, we, we need to figure out, how is she getting there? She says, I, I'm, I'm, con- I'm convinced God is telling me to divorce my husband. Well, Emily, help me understand what you mean by that. How did you come to that conclusion? And you just have to have a conversation with her. How did she get there? But along the way of necessity, we're going to have to help her to learn probably a more biblical way of doing decision making. So let's uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Because uh, Moses, as he's wrapping up his final sermon here before he goes up on the mountain, sees the promised land and dies, uh, he very helpfully gives us an overview of how we understand the things of God, the will of God. As he concludes chapter 29, Moses says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. You say, what's he saying? Moses is reminding the people, God is omniscient, and there are some things that God knows that he's not going to tell us. Not going to tell you. Um, there are lots of things that God's not going to tell us. You just have to wait and see how things work out in his providence. The Bible calls those the secret things. You say, the only time the secret things are made known to us is when God chooses to tell us. And at that point, it's not a secret thing anymore. It's a revealed thing. So secret things, revealed things. That shows us the two sort of buckets for thinking about the will of God. The secret will of God, the sovereign will of God, 
That's his master plan that runs every direction, every experience, every variable in the universe. Uh, It's secret because God doesn't tell us what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, It just works out in his providence. And we go, okay, you know, um, the the, the shoes that my son left out the other night, that, that was part of God's providence. I didn't know that until I walked in the room, right? And then there are the revealed things, right? And as the text is explicit here, those are found in the words of the law, meaning the words of the scriptures, the words of the instructions. And God does reveal things in his word. Why? So that we can observe them. God doesn't give us revelation just so that we can know it. He gives it so that we can actually follow it and obey it. So that helps us to see uh, in the will of God, we have two categories, uh, God's providence, right? That God works in every detail of life to accomplish his perfect sovereign will. That sovereign or secret will of God cannot be discovered. And then the scriptures, right? God reveals his moral will to people through the Bible. The moral will of God is completely revealed in scripture and should be learned and obeyed. Um, So when we're talking about knowing the will of God, we're really talking about knowing his moral will. That, that's, that's what we can know because it's been revealed. What a lot of Christians do when they have a decision to make is they're wanting to somehow tap into his sovereign will, to his secret will. And why does God call it a secret again? Do you remember why? It's a secret because it's a... It's a secret. There, okay, good. I was going to make you say it there. It's a secret. God's not going to tell you. He's not going to tell you. Um... I, uh, uh, if I have time, I'll tell you a story later on that freaks everybody out about that. But anyway, um, but, but here's what happens. People say, I know the Bible says this, but I want more. And then they concoct these weird ways of trying to get additional information beyond the Bible that they feel is necessary for their decision. And God says, it's my secret will. You can't know it. What we need to major on is the moral will. And, and that leads to to all sorts of things, right? Um, God guides people through the Bible when believers read, accurately interpret, appropriately apply the Bible. The Bible is not intended to be used in alternative ways, right? We, we use it in its normal, plain sense. We don't play Bible roulette. We don't look through hidden messages through Hebrew equidistant letter spacing codes. We don't ignore the historical context. Um, we, we use the Bible the way the Bible was meant to be read in its ordinary sense. There's not some you know, secret code, decoder, whatever, Um, and then guidance beyond the Bible. When when we're not content with that, Christians say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I need more. I want to know more. So what do we do? We seek guidance beyond the word of God, which is always tragic. Things like impressions, signs, fleeces, inner peace, open and closed doors, impressions, subjective promptings, things like that. Remember what J. Adam says, open doors lead to elevator shafts. Be careful before you walk through them. Um, I, you, you remember this? I remember Stuart Scott. I remember uh, teaching this material years ago. He talked about the lady who uh, was wanting to go on the trip to see her sister, and she had to get on an airplane to do it. It was a cross-country trip. And do I do I get on this airplane, or do I not get on the airplane? Lord, give me a sign uh, whether or not I should go see my sister. She she opens up. She looks at the clock. The clock says 7:37, which is a type of airplane. 7:37, and uh, oh. 737, I, you know, my uncle's a pilot. I think he flies it. Oh, yeah, that's an airplane. Oh, God's telling me. He's showing me a sign. Thank you, Lord. I will buy my ticket right now. And Right? And I never, Stuart Scott, who's, you know, very humble, but has a really dry sense of humor. I remember he, he, he said in class, he's like, it would have been more convincing if uh, the clock had read Airbus 380 or something like that, you know. And Anyway, but, uh, so, we yeah, DC-10, right, or L-1011 or, they don't fly those much today anymore. But uh, anyway, so um, so the reality is, if we're not content in the Bible, we end up inventing ways that are misguided. And, uh, and, and sometimes this happens by abusing Scripture. We go back and read the story of Gideon and the fleeces in the book of Judges. And, and I, I think I can tell you this. You guys know that putting out a fleece is not an example to follow, right? Gideon put out the fleece not because he wanted to know what God wanted it, like, what, God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to put out the fleece. God already told him what to do. He put out the fleece. Why? Because he didn't believe God. And God was patient and long-suffering to let the little fleece thing happen. But Gideon's fleece is actually an indicator of his lack of faith, not a decision-making process to follow. Um, other things, right? Um, you know, signs, fleeces. Jesus said uh, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. We don't want to do that. 
inner peace. You say, doesn't Colossians say, um, you know, let, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, right? So if I have peace about a decision, that's God confirming the decision, right? Well, except that Colossians 3 is not talking about peace in your heart. It's talking about peace with other people. The whole context is about getting along with other people in the body of Christ. It's not uh, an indicator that God is affirming of your decision. Now, impressions and subjective promptings are real, but not authoritative. So, so go, go back. I, I'm, I'm there a little teary watching my son drive out the driveway, and I have this overwhelming feeling that something horrible is about to happen to my son. Where did that come from? My own heart, my own fear, my own vain imagination. Um, but it felt so real. Don't your emotions do that? Your emotions feel right. Emotions feel self-authenticating, don't they? When they can be completely misguided. Um, So again, we're not saying that doesn't happen. It happens to all of us. But the question is, what do I do? Now, now let's take a, a more sanctified. Let's say you're driving down the road and a person comes to mind. And you're like, you know what? I'm gonna pray for that person. I haven't thought about them at all. I'm just gonna pray for them. And then uh, you know you're you're scrolling Facebook that night, and or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever we do. And I don't know if you guys do social media or not. But anyway, you're, you're getting information. However, you get information, and you you hear that your friend that came to mind in that moment had surgery that day. And you go, oh, maybe that was God's spirit telling me to pray for my friend. What do you do with that? Well, we go back to our model, right? God in his providence worked to bring a person to mind. Now what do I do? Well, the Bible says pray without ceasing. It's always right to pray. It's always God's will to pray. If a person comes to mind, we ought to pray for them every time. Not because they came to mind, but because the Bible tells us pray. So when an impression happens, that's what we do. We, we don't get all caught up. Is this God? Is this? But we evaluate the impression based on the revealed will of God, and then we act accordingly. Does that make sense? So they're real. They're just not authoritative. Yes? And I I agree. And we shouldn't discount that. We should give all glory to God for that. But how we give all glory to God, how we explain it is what I'm saying. Is we say, you know, the 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 Lord. I I don't think it's wrong to say, you know, the Lord and His providence brought your name to mind. I don't think that's I don't think that's bad theology. But that's different than saying the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, right. So it's how we're describing that experience, and that's not semantic either. I think. How we describe it is just as much theologically significant as our conclusion is. So, yeah, Melissa. So, um, looking at the Trinity in Ephesians 4, about the Lord, you know, the Father, and the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son, not go beyond what scripture says so scripture would put that as a function of his providence um, as opposed to saying you know the holy spirit was speaking to my heart to put this on my mind to alert me to because the scripture doesn't doesn't play it out like that so just saying this is god and his providence giving glory to god Uh, but but here's the other thing you know if um you know sometimes we have impressions and promptings and they're wrong so if I start saying, every time I get that prompting and impression, that's God talking to me. And like when my son's driving away, it felt divine, it felt supernatural, but that wasn't God talking to me. So that's why we have to be really careful how we describe it and what we do with it. If it doesn't line up with the word of God or it goes beyond the word of God, we, we just have to be careful in terms of how we interpret it. So, And then the role of wisdom, you know, rather than seek information beyond scripture, what we want to do is walk prayerfully in wisdom, applying biblical decisions. And again, um, Dr. Scott's material there will help you to flesh that out even more. So, Okay, the, the last little bit, guys, and then we'll get you to lunch that we need to talk about is divorce and remarriage because this question requires us not just to talk about decision-making, 
but to also talk about divorce and remarriage. And uh, we understand that uh, uh, even amongst godly people like, uh, I don't know, John Piper or John MacArthur or Jay Adams, or that, that uh, sometimes reliable uh, authors, pastors, theologians have a different viewpoint. So my goal here is, is not to convince you of my particular viewpoint of divorce and remarriage, but to give you a, a biblical framework through which hopefully you can work through those things together. Um, and uh, so, so let's uh, let's turn in our Bibles. Um, well, let's let's just go to uh, Matthew 19 because it's going to quote from Genesis 24, 22:24, right? So, first of all, marriage is intended to be a lifelong institution. When God performed the marriage ceremony for Adam and Eve, for this cause a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2:24. Uh, that was intended to be a permanent relationship. You say, how do we know that? Because Jesus, quoting that verse in Matthew chapter 19, uh, adds this commentary, chapter 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let what? No man separate, or if you're a King James, or let no man put asunder. Right? And we still say that. I, I, that's, that is the last thing I say at a wedding before you can kiss your wife. It's the last thing I say. And it's intentional. Because our culture needs to hear more than any other time, perhaps at least in our our country's history, that marriage is intended to be a permanent union. Um, okay? So it's, it's a night we don't separate what God has joined. Uh, Proverbs describes the uh, satisfaction of what is intended between a husband and wife, physically, emotionally, relationally, as a friendship. So it's intended to be a permanent relationship. Uh, we can cross-reference there. You guys know the verse about God hating divorce and Malachi. That There's some historical context there, what's going on in the passage. But uh, what God says through the prophet Malachi is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that uh, divorce is something that God hates. And... Um, so we've got Matthew 19 in front of us. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees who are trying to trick him. You remember in Jesus' day, there were two rabbinical schools. Uh, one was led by a guy named uh, Shammai. One was led by a rabbi named Hillel. Uh, Hillel was the liberal rabbi. Shammai was the conservative rabbi. And so the Pharisees were, where do you, where do you say, Jesus? Where do you stand? And of course, we know because Jesus tells us their motives were not pure in that. Um, so they come back, verse 7, to Jesus. Okay, well, okay, Jesus, if it's, if it's like that, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Referencing uh, uh, Deuteronomy there. Um, and we, we'll go back to Deuteronomy 24. We can look at that passage another time. But what's going on in Deuteronomy? What's going on in Deuteronomy is men are taking advantage of women. That's what's going on. Men are divorcing their wives. They are remarrying and then they get rid of that second wife and they go back to the first one and say hey let's get back together they're they're totally taking advantage of women so moses said um based on god's instructions we need to regulate this this is this is, this should not be happening you're taking advantage of women so we need to do something legally to protect women in doing that god and moses did not intend to say all that's okay what was happening was it was a provision to try to bring some sanity to people whose hearts were far from God. And that's what Jesus says here, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And then he says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, will you notice with me, exegetically, contextually here, and uh, you might want, this is kind of a technical detail, so you might want to write it down. Um, Matthew 18 comes before Matthew 19. Can you notice that with me? 18 comes before 19. What's, not, what's 18 all about? Forgiveness, reconciliation, um, pursuit of a brother for the sake of reconciliation. 
the lost sheep, right? The, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The whole context is about forgiveness and reconciliation. So when Jesus turns the page and starts talking about divorce and remarriage, he's not saying all that stuff I was just talking about doesn't apply to marriage. My, my putting together of these um, truths leads me to the conclusion that I don't think divorce should be an option for a Christian couple. Because a Christian couple, if they're really Christians, what are they going to do? They're going to repent, and then they need to reconcile and seek forgiveness. And there is no sin that is so egregious that the grace of Christ through forgiveness and reconciliation can't repair. And if you have two Christians, I say Christians, true Christians, right, they're really committed to that, they can work it out. Divorce is, is not an option, uh, my, my opinion. Not, it should not be an option because reconciliation is always better. You say, well, what if adultery occurs? Well, Jesus doesn't say if they committed adultery, you have to divorce them. He says if they committed adultery, that is an option. But on the heels of Matthew 18, I think we can say clearly that reconciliation and forgiveness is the better option. It's better for the kids. It's better for the picture of the gospel pictured in the marriage. It's better uh, for the sanctification of the couple. Um, it's better. So I, when Jesus gives that exception, in terms of the application, what I would tell people who, whose, whose spouses have committed adultery in a, and, and they're both truly regenerate, I would say, you know, you have the option, but this is, this is the, the preferable path to pursue. What's that? In, in what, what regard? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, so that would be another picture of, you know, recognizing that, right? So, yeah, and, and, even, um, and even when the Bible uses divorce language to describe Israel, we know that God reconciles and restores, if you will, down the road. So, yeah, the, the picture is consistent there. Now, if divorce does occur, reconciliation or signalness are usually the only options. So um, the, the language here in Matthew 19, uh, except for immorality, sexual sin, uh, I would say if it's unrepentant sexual sin, uh, the person is, not, is showing themselves to not be a Christian, kind of the end of uh, what uh, Matthew 18 was talking about with church discipline. 1 Corinthians 7 adds an exception. 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you do not have license to get a divorce and you do it anyway, then your options are to remain single or to reconcile. You do not have the freedom to be remarried if you are divorced as a Christian when you did not have biblical uh, freedom to do so. Now, here's where I want to be honest, just some reliable commentators. Some interpreters like Jay Adams hold that divorce is allowable by God in two specific situations, immorality, we saw that in Matthew 19, and the abandonment of the believing spouse by an unbelieving mate. Um, the elders of a person's local church need to be involved in helping determine how the biblical texts apply. Um, and so this is not a decision to be made you know, in isolation, but I think the, the, person, the church leadership should help in that. Other interpreters, uh, oh, uh, and consistent with that, most interpreters would say that if the, if the, uh, if the divorce was allowable by the quote-unquote innocent spouse, then remarriage is allowable. Although we might say uh, delaying remarriage is wise. Uh, delaying remarriage to make sure that you've got your feet under you and you can walk with God and work through the, the, the challenges of that. But they can only marry in the Lord if they do. Other interpreters like John Piper would say that divorce, divorce is never allowed. They interpret Matthew 19 as betrothal unfaithfulness and thus it's really talking about betrothal and not actual marriage and uh, so that is his conclusion but whether you like Adams or Piper uh, what we all agree on is that the Bible prohibits the vast majority of divorces um, so we want to help her with that yeah so what do you do in an abuse scenario so an abuse scenario you follow biblical principles about protection you follow biblical principles about church discipline. You follow biblical principles about uh, appeal and gospel witness. So you're, mm -hmm. you're helping protect the person who's being abused. We, we, we want to keep them from that. Mm -hmm. 
but we also have to follow biblical instructions there. So usually what's going to happen is that person that's doing the abuse is going to show themselves to not be a Christian, or maybe we know they're not a Christian, and um, and they they leave the marriage, uh, they abandon the marriage, and in that case, that divorce is allowable from the person who's being abused. What 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 people are wrestling with now is you know is abuse a third exception? And the problem is it's just not explicit in the text. So what we have to say is you know just because you're being abused doesn't give you license to pursue a divorce. But the Bible says, let's protect you, let's appeal, let's deal with this guy, and let's let the Bible, uh, let's God, let God do his work through these biblical instructions there. So it's a messier road, but that's the road I think the Bible calls us to walk down. And there's lots of other factors that I think pastors consider and all that. So, all right, I'm not going to make you late to lunch. Let me pray and let you go. Father, thanks for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us, that has... Uh, work to produce the Bible and that we have him directing us and helping us. Uh, Father, give us grace with people like Emily to walk through hard things like decision-making and divorce. Uh, Lord, help help our, our sympathies not to override clear biblical f- fidelity, uh, but might we be charitable and gracious as we, uh, we lead and, and counsel people. Thanks for good food and, and the time we'll have now to enjoy it together and converse. In Jesus' name, amen.